0: This is David Mashi, editor of Discourse, an online journal of politics, economics, and culture, published by the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. Welcome to the Discourse Magazine podcast. In today's episode, another in our series entitled Fortress and Frontier, Conversations on Healthcare and Innovation, Mercatus Senior Fellow Robert Grayboy's talks to business executive David Goldhill. Goldhill is the CEO and co-founder of Sesame, an online marketplace for discounted health services. During their wide-ranging conversation, Goldhill discusses how his father's premature death led him to explore the failings of the American health care system, how technology has changed medical care, and many other issues. The audio, as well as the transcript of this discussion, has been slightly edited for clarity.
1: Welcome to all of our listeners, and a really warm welcome to David Goldhill, who has been a friend and colleague for quite a few years now. When I first met David, he was president and CEO of GSN, which marketed video games and operated television's game show network. He also founded the TV3 Russia National Broadcast Network. These days, David is CEO and co-founder of Sesame, an online marketplace for discounted healthcare services. He is also board chair for the Leapfrog Group, a watchdog organization focused on hospital and medical safety. As an undergraduate, I was an English literature major, so I'm especially happy to note that David's education was also in the humanities, a B.A. in history from Harvard and a master's in history from New York University. David, it's a real pleasure to have you with us today.
2: Thanks, Bob. Great to be with you.
1: You know, as a health economist, people often ask me to recommend books that will give them a quick and high-quality understanding of health care and healthcare policy, and especially of American health care. I have an easy time naming my top five books. Three of them are by Dr. Eric Topol, who appeared on my podcast in July. One book is by Clayton Christensen, Jerome Grossman, and Jason Wong. Jason, who's the only surviving member of that trio of co-authors, appeared on my podcast in early October, so now I'm finishing off my top five book series by interviewing David Goldhill. Personal tragedy had led David to write a cover story for The Atlantic magazine titled How American Healthcare Killed My Father. That quietly explosive essay led to David's 2013 book titled Catastrophic Care, why Everything We Think We Know About Healthcare Is Wrong. Ultimately, that book led David to found Sesame Care, a company that combines elements of healthcare and communications. David, welcome to the podcast. First, was my introduction all correct? Did I leave out anything important?
2: Absolutely nothing important, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be uh, in the company of those other authors. Those are all really terrific works.
1: Yeah, well, you earned it. So let's start with the heavy-duty part of your story, the saga that precipitated your deep dive into healthcare, the death of your father. Could you please tell us about your father and about what happened to him in the hospital? Well, my
2: father was a, a psychiatrist and still in uh, a private practice uh, on the day that uh, he felt a little shortness of breath after work, felt a little uh, disorientation, walked into a local hospital in, uh, in New York City, and they kept him under observation, called my mother, my mother went to see him. They said they would keep him there for the night. And he probably would be released in the morning. And by the next morning, uh, for reasons that we really still never have uncovered, someone had put a central line in him got an infection from a a central line, apparently was at that point in uh, septic shock, and essentially never recovered. He died five weeks later, having not left the hospital. In fact, I don't recall ever having left the ICU. You know, it was was quite a shock. Obviously, at my father's age, you are vulnerable to a long range of of illnesses that can suddenly cause a change in health. But as we understood, the the major health issue had been the infection he got in the hospital. And as I found out very shortly after uh, uh, my father's death, this was something that was incredibly common. I'd had really very few interactions with the healthcare system. Personally, my mother had 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 cancer and had treatment for that. So we had been obviously involved with that, but finding out that not just that hospital infections were very common and were also a common cause of death, particularly in in people my father's age, but that many of them were regarded as preventable was fundamentally shocking uh, to me. And obviously that shock combined with the tremendous grief I felt for losing my father and the surprise of how quickly his health deteriorated, uh, led to my uh, interest in and, and involvement in healthcare issues.
1: You may have said it, but how old was he? He was 82. 82. Okay. Okay. Still too early. So there you are grieving for your father. How did the Atlantic essay come about? Do you approach them? Did they approach you?
2: No. I mean, actually, what happened is the New Yorker published a piece by uh, Atul Gawande, one of his many excellent and extraordinary pieces, Uh, this one about the prevalence of medical error, specifically hospital-acquired infections, and how a number of physicians had proposed ways to meaningfully reduce the number of infections, mostly a combination of sanitary checklists, a little bit of of, uh, procedures. And there was a a specific doctor, uh, Peter Pronovost, who had led this campaign and how difficult a time he was having getting hospitals to adopt these protocols, even though at hospitals that had had seen their death rates decline by half, two thirds, three quarters. And just to give a sense of the data at the time, the estimate was that as many as 200,000 people a year might be either killed or seriously um, uh, injured by these infections. And if you start applying 65 75% prevention rates in that, you realize you're looking at the greatest number of preventable deaths imaginable from this one thing. And reading that, and again, dealing with the feelings I had about my father, and being an outsider in healthcare, I asked myself a question, which was, how are you not incented to adopt these? And forget about the regulation of care, you know, which is the first place you look. Why doesn't the government do something? Or forget about, you know, doctors' responsibility or institutions' responsibility, just the economic incentives. If the cost of adopting this was so low and the benefit was so great, what does it say to us about a private industrial activity where the incentive isn't, hey, let's just adopt the safety provision? I tried to think about anything else in life where such a big benefit at such a low cost wouldn't be automatically adopted just through the normal commercial and economic incentives. That's the question that sort of set me off on my interest in healthcare. And pretty much everything in the Atlantic article is pulling on that thread. What does it tell us about real economic and business incentives in healthcare? Thinking as a business person, that something like big picture, big, you know, impact safety, isn't adopted. And when you look at the rest of the issues in healthcare, value and price and transparency, uh, what does it tell us about the real economic incentives that govern those areas? And that's what I wrote about in the Atlantic
1: piece. It's a a theme that comes up in my work all the time. So a couple of months ago on this this podcast, I interviewed Dr. Devi Shetty from um, Narayana System in India and his hospitals there, kind of famously eradicated bed sores uh, almost 100% simply by using low, low-tech, low inexpensive techniques, checklists, and whatever, highly informed by, I don't know, cleaning crew and nurses and low-level staffers who had thoughts on it. Another story, which actually I, I've just written an op-ed with Eric Topol, and, and we'll mention this in there, Uh, I had some conversations with Cerner a few years ago, and the the then CEO of Cerner had a relative who went through basically the same experience as your father, a hospital-borne infection that unnecessarily took her out. I think it was his sister-in-law, and he ordered the company to develop some sort of an algorithm, a software uh, piece that would serve as a sniffer in hospital rooms. So this thing would detect probably six to eight hours before any human would realize anything was wrong. It would sense from the patient's uh, telemetry that there was a a bug in the room that was going to pose a, a major threat to the hospital. And Cerner made the decision to give the stuff away. They, they did not charge for it. He just said, every hospital should have this. Uh, we'll give it out. Some of his officials there told me that the big problem is they would give it to them and they would just never turn it on. And they could show, look, here are the data. If you turn it on, this is by how much your death rates and your infection rates are going to plunge. And they would say thank you and then still not turn it on. And that was for them the most frustrating aspect of it.
2: I think that's a really interesting um, uh, point that that you raise because... One of the things that's very confusing, I think, to analysts of healthcare is that we have a lot of science in healthcare. A lot, almost everybody, goes into healthcare to save lives, to help people, to make uh, humankind better off, and that's terrific and explains a lot of what happens. The reality is, there's no hospital board that ever says, "Oh, let's de-emphasize safety. Let, let's not do anything about infections." But economic incentives matter, and they matter a lot because when that hospital board meets. Everybody on the board wants the hospital to be safer, but it's item number 38 on the agenda and you don't get to item 38 because economic incentives matter. And I think one of the things that I've tried to bring to the writing of this as a business person is, wonderful, we have all these saints, wonderful, they want to do some good or a lot of good. You got to get the economic incentives right, though, to rely on this massive complex producing the kind of outcomes you want.
1: So let me pull a couple of quotes. So Atlantic Essay comes out, and you know I, I met you not too long after that. Uh, I met you, I guess, I can't remember if the book was out or whether it was about to be out, but I know it made a big stir. So let me just, I went to the source of all information, Wikipedia, and I, uh, I pulled out uh, a couple of quotes about that essay. So David Brooks from the New York Times wrote... If I were magically given an hour to help Barack Obama prepare for his health care speech next week, the first thing I do is ask him to read David Goldhill's essay. And CNN's Fareed Zakaria called it, quote, the best article I have read on American health care, unquote. John Schwenker of the American Conservative referred to it as, quote, maybe the best writing on health care, Unquote. And as these quotes indicate, your essay earned plaudits from both sides of the political aisle, which was certainly no easy feat, especially during that politically contentious time. Uh, so, could you, I don't know, summarize the essay for it? What were the main points that a reader would learn from reading it? And I hope some of them will read it after hearing this.
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think your your last point is spot on, which is this was a very politicized moment because of the debate over what ultimately became the Affordable Care Act, which was just being formulated then. And we got into one of these terrible binary partisan debates, does the Affordable Care Act save humanity or destroy it? And uh, my article steps completely away from that and just says, look, you know, um, American healthcare is a office tower uh, whose foundations are crumbling. And so arguing over how many floors we should add to it, you know, is entirely a temporary solution at best. What I said is that much of our knowledge about healthcare was based on the mid-50s, mid-20th century, 50s, 60s time when all of the world healthcare systems were created. And they were created around a type of healthcare which was very, very active, very major, where the patient knew nothing you know, based a lot on that first for a famous economics work that, you know, had been done, that patients had not nearly enough knowledge to es- exercise the normal discipline on the healthcare system. It had to be managed centrally by someone other than the patient. And that the alternative had proven far worse, because we were missing all the benefit of having patients as consumers, that we had confused the social desire to provide a safety net for everybody with the very different thing of substituting for everybody as the customer. That we had created a system where the customers of the system were in absolute control of the economy, but the customers weren't us, they were Medicare and large insurance companies, and that their goals and objectives were very different than what ours were, and that disconnect was growing. Basically, if I could summarize in a sentence, is that the assumptions on which healthcare policy in the U.S. and everywhere else were of a specific time and a combination of healthcare and healthcare needs, technology, information technology, and all the other stuff about the consumer world had changed so much that it was time to completely rethink those core assumptions. And so it was far enough away, I think, from the partisan debate for both right and left to see things of interest in it. The right, obviously, interested in getting market forces more powerful in healthcare. And the left, I think, to some extent, attracted by what I was saying, which is government's probably not going to be a great regulator when it's the industry's business partner. And right now, the government is the industry's business partner. And I think that explains why regulation in healthcare doesn't accomplish what we want it to in terms of safety and transparency and other traditional regulatory issues.
1: You know, that prompts a couple of thoughts in my head, which is a lot of the rules that we live by were really baked in when modern medicine was extraordinarily new. One of the best books on healthcare, one of the most thoughtful books I ever read, was a little book by Lewis Thomas, who was, I forget, he was at Yale and he ran Sloan Kettering. And he was a brilliant essayist, wrote a little book called The, the Fragile Species and he talked about about a 1600 year period when it was all bloodletting and leeches and then in around the 1830s the medical profession realized we're terrible we do more harm than good we need to stop doing everything which uh i have to think there's a term for the um therapeutic nihilism they called it so Medicine went into this period of therapeutic nihilism, and when Lewis Thomas was at Harvard Medical School in the 1930s, mid-1930s, he said that was still in effect. We were basically taught our job is to keep our hands off of the patient, to observe them, to advise them, to tell the family what's going on, and perhaps to hire a nurse and ease pain, but not to do anything because we don't know what we're doing. And, of course, the 1930s is when we get penicillin, and it really gets rolling in World War II, and it's not much more than a decade later that I'm born. So basically, my life begins not much more than 10 years into what we would call modern medicine, which is about when we start laying down policies that create the financial incentives that we're still living with. So a lot of what we're dealing with is... Uh, things that were when when essentially medicine was a brand new field, and we're stuck with it.
2: I I think that's right, and I think there you know this is an area that desperately needs an intellectual revolution, and a big part of that revolution will be, and I can say this now that I'm sixty, stop worshiping the old. Old is bad healthcare is an economy. I mean, it's massive, complex, huge numbers of individual conditions, treatments, technologies, et cetera. It is the most complex sector we have to deal with. How do we manage it? How do we allocate capital? How do we price? Are not easily centrally planned. But beyond that, all of those things are constantly changing. You know, when I hear someone talk about the NHS as if it's some sort of church, the the British healthcare system, or Medicare as a you know, a sacred commitment, I think, really? They're old, and they can't possibly work anymore. I mean, how in the late 1940s for the NHS or the mid-1960s for Medicare and Medicaid, could you have possibly anticipated all of the change in demographics, healthcare need, healthcare technology, and associated treatments that we would see 60 years later? How could you have possibly planned correctly for that? What you did is you said, gee, most of it seems to be major, unanticipated, and financially ruinous, and we built a system around that. So somewhere between 75 and 85% of every healthcare dollar is now spent on something that is a long-term chronic treatment. How does that work in an insurance system? It doesn't, period, full stop. It doesn't. You would never have built an insurance system to manage that type of spending. You built it to manage a different type of spending. Here's what gets worse. The technologies we're developing around artificial intelligence, around genetic knowledge, around remote treatment, around targeted pharmaceuticals, all means that healthcare is going to get ever more personalized uh, in its treatments, almost certainly. Now, I know predicting these things is always a risk, but certainly there's so much work around that. How can you build an insurance system that governs that? You can't. You wouldn't. No one would ever occur to it. So. What we do in the rest of the economy is we say, hey, when we move from physical mail to email, we don't insist the post office deliver the email, right? And you know, when we move from stores to online, we don't insist you go into Sears to place your Amazon orders. We change. We build enough dynamism into the system so that it can respond to changing human needs and the changing ways that we're addressing those human needs. And in healthcare, almost every single healthcare reform can be read as, how do I protect these ideas I came up with in 1940, 1950, and 1960, now that they're no longer relevant or work? And I guess the biggest thing I would argue is start with worshiping change and dynamism, not ancient and static. That's a great place. And, and you know, fundamentally, as I realized what all my writings have been about, which is things change. Why doesn't healthcare?
1: Yep. And in my writing, I've often said that uh, to understand healthcare, imagine if in information technology, if we had spent the last 40 to 50 years debating over how to allocate time on mainframe computers and how to how to pay for that time.
2: And to that very point, You know, my mom, I've already said I'm 60. My mom is older than I am, but like two or three years. My mom carries a supercomputer around with her everywhere and uses it for everything. Yep. And if in 1965, when Medicare was passed, uh, you know, you'd said to people, grandmothers are going to carry around supercomputers only 60 years from now. You know, a healthcare economist would say, we're really going to get all of them, computer science PhDs. It's going to be incredibly expensive. And, And of course, you know, it's it's a little bit silly, but not completely, right? In computing and mobile telephony and information technology, we've said it's okay for companies to figure out a way to serve this human need to the point where grandmothers carry around supercomputers and use them without any problem. In healthcare, we said, let's freeze in place all of these industrial structures from the 60s. And guess what? We have a healthcare system horrifically mismatched for current uh, human needs and treatment opportunities, and you know it's exactly your point, which is that in healthcare we reflexively say, "Oh, if that change is going to happen, we have to plan for it. We have to manage it. We have to, in your example, allocate mainframe resources." And of course, in the rest of the economy, that's not what's happening at all.
1: I just had a conversation the other day on on this. People were saying, well, telemedicine will, you know, there are a lot of people who aren't really going to be able to figure it out. There's an equity problem. Old people aren't going to be able to. And what I always do then is I send a link to a YouTube video. It's uh, in around 1940, the Bell system produced a 20 minute video explaining how to use rotary telephones because it was absolutely terrifying a large segment of the population how will we ever be able to do this where do you find this stuff how do you always find this stuff <laughs> that's what i do in life i'll send i'll send you that one too i want that but it's great it's got this I don't know, this old character who's the grandfather with a Vermont accent, and he's, <laughs> we don't need these newfangledy phones here. and uh, But but they felt the need to do a 20-minute video because this was so complex and so frightening.
2: Whereas, you know, millions and millions of grandparents were using, you know, FaceTime and, and other technologies to talk to their grandkids everywhere. And somehow they figured it out.
1: Go ahead, and You know, I don't even know if you know this story, but my mother narrowly averted uh, your father's fate when she was 92. She was talking FaceTime with my nephew, who is an emergency room doctor, and she was sitting alone in her apartment. And he asked, how how you doing, Grandma? And she said, I'm, I'm pretty good uh, for an old lady. And my mother was extremely sharp. She Her mind was undimmed, and she was just using her iPad She said, the only thing bothering me is on my bottom here I have this sore, and it's hurting and it's not getting better, but I'm going to make an appointment and go see the doctor in a week. So my nephew picked up on some cues and looked at her and was watching her breathing and watching her face. He said, Grandma, I I, I hate to ask you this, but do you mind showing me the wound? And My mother was a character and said something along the lines of, heck I'm I'm 92 years old what do I care so she swung the camera down and showed him and said let me call you back in a few minutes and he called my brother who's also an ER doctor said I think she's going into septic shock mm. and he said I think we need to get her to a hospital this minute so he called her back and and sent my niece over to pick her up I think or I forget how they got her there, but got her to the hospital. And indeed, she had—I'm pretty sure it was a MRSA infection. And I mean, she—it was touch and go. They barely saved her, but they—she—she she managed to get another year and a half of good life out of it. But—but uh, but it was the sort of thing. And my mother was no technologist, but somehow that little device just—you know—she liked it, and it saved her life. Well, I think that's, I think that's, Professor uh, Source,
2: I don't, uh, you never did tell me that story before. That is uh, an incredible story. But there's also something, you know, in the previous statement that I think relates to one of the big things we need to have an intellectual revolution about. We need to worship change and we need to stop looking for solutions that fit everybody. There are so many times you'll hear criticism of an innovation, including a meaningful cost saving innovation, of everybody can't use that. So the way we get to everybody can use something is not to dumb everything down to a level where it's useless, but rather to get something that works, that give people an incentive to figure out how to use it. And the idea that only 75% of the population has access to this is an argument against doing it, I think has really harmed innovation in healthcare. I mean, telemed being one of the most obvious things where We're now celebrating this innovation that is literally 20 years old in the rest of our lives and is now brand new in healthcare because we finally have rules to reimburse it. I think we got to get used to this idea that in the real economy, one of the things that drives innovation isn't that I found something that works for everybody, but that I found something that works for some identifiable somebodies, the somebodies like it. It enables me to have enough of a business model to extend the functionality. And eventually, eventually, I'm teaching grandmothers how to use supercomputers, and it takes three minutes to figure it out. It doesn't come all at once. And one of these sort of straitjackets in healthcare, and I understand the desire, you know, for uh, greater social uh, access, It's it's a desirable and commendable one, but it's defeating when it prevents innovation from happening. Because sometimes innovation happens only amongst the few. Once you've got success there, you can then you have the tools to, to, to spread it more generally in society. That tends to work much better. And these arguments we have in healthcare, which we think are about virtue and social goals, wind up just putting us further and further behind the rest of the economy. Look, I think fundamentally, healthcare is our biggest consumer industry. It's just not run like a consumer industry. But it can be, which doesn't mean it only is. It just means it has more of the consumer elements that have worked so well in the rest of the economy.
1: So your essay came out in the Atlantic and it became a big thing. Was there a moment, an epiphany when you realized someone said something that, okay, this is going to be big? Uh, Was there some reaction that you remember that someone had? Well, I think when the David Brooks piece came
2: out. You know, it's obviously very unusual in something like the New York Times to basically tell people to go read an article in a different, <laughs> a different thing. So I realized that 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 was very good, and 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 there was a some other very well known papers said this is really interesting, and I realized that I sort of struck a chord, and I think it struck a chord because let's face it, most of healthcare conversation is the government should do this, the government should do that. Different ideological sides, though, all starts from the government should do this. And here was somebody saying, look, it's all about private incentives. You know, big programs never work if the private incentives argue against them. I think the fundamental incentive in the system is a disincentive, which is there is no reason for anybody to invest in cost-saving technologies, techniques, or processes. You simply, the the only reason people invest in cost-saving technologies is so they get more customers by lowering their prices. And since nobody in healthcare gets more customers by lowering their prices, nobody is going to invest in that. And I, I can't tell you how much, I mean, I had endless numbers of debates with healthcare experts say, here's a great idea for reducing costs. And I'll say, yeah, but if you force companies to do it or hospitals to do it or the drug companies, whoever you're trying to force this on, they'll do it, but they're not going to lower prices. That's a different thing. Prices don't come down with costs. Costs come down with prices. I got to cut my price to get customers. I figure out a way to reduce my costs. If you just reduce my costs and there's no competition for price, I just have a bigger profit margin. And it is amazing to me. I mean, Bob, I'm going to say something very insulting here. So you can hang up on me. It is amazing to me how few healthcare economists seem to have the economist in their description. It's as as if they're on this island and everything they see in the rest of the day, everything else they've studied outside of healthcare, suddenly no longer applies. We live on an island where, you know, none of the rules apply. And even though I went shopping this morning and picked up my dry cleaning and went to Starbucks and, you know, paid a lease payment on my car, et cetera, et cetera, none of that am I going to think about when I think about how healthcare has to work. That has always struck me as just bizarre.
1: I agree. I agree. Uh,
2: Present company excluded. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. No, I yeah and the the ideological end of it's enjoyable one of my stock phrases is that you know the left side of the spectrum believes that the role of the federal government should be to stamp out competition and obstruct innovation, whereas the conservative side of the aisle believes that that the job of stamping out competition and obstructing innovation should be best left to the states and uh... <laughs> uh,
2: but but I think in healthcare you're right is that is that both parties. This is a bipartisan issue. I'm not particularly partisan about it because reforms on both sides, you know, whether they seem more market flavored or more state flavored have ultimately the same effect, which is one size fits all. Let's protect this old existing system we built. It's no longer relevant to how people really live.
1: Yep. So we move on to the book. So this essay grew into a book. You know, how'd that come about and where does the book go that the essay didn't?
2: Well, I think it's much broader. I mean, the the essay really is specifically about our belief because I, uh, you know, uh, President Obama had discussed some of the principles that he was thinking about for what became Affordable Care Act, that we can solve the affordability problem with what is essentially financial engineering. And so the essay is very sort of tight on here's the discussion we're having. Here's probably why it doesn't work because it doesn't materially change the incentives the book steps back a bit further and sort of asks more broadly what are the fundamental underlying issues and and that's where i think i talk more about how the the system no longer works this role of the insurer or medicare as customer has not disciplined the system the way individual consumers do and looks more broadly at at potential solutions to the problem it's it's it also gets more into the issues of regulation and how regulation is compromised by the government being partner customer you know, of, of the industry. And then I think also attempts to get at what I call, you know, island thinking in healthcare, like I just mentioned, that somehow the rules in healthcare are totally different than anything else. And that this, this sort of belief we had, I mean, Kenneth Arrow famously wrote about it, that since healthcare had to be different, uh, healthcare had to be different and that, that all the changes that have happened that enable us to make healthcare more normal, we've kind of ignored.
1: So the book's now, at eight years old. So is there anything you've learned in those years that would lead you to change what you wrote back then? Has anything surprised you for the better or for the worse since you wrote Catastrophic Care?
2: Yeah, a bunch of things. I mean, I think I have more of a historical sense around this and more of an international sense around this. Specifically, I think the US healthcare economy, because it drives innovation in a way that others do not, can't easily be compared to other healthcare economies. That all of these things we do, you know, on the right asking why we can't be more like Singapore, on the left maybe asking why we can't be more like the UK or Canada, is really a bit of an apples and oranges comparison. The US is the absolute dynamic engine of the world of healthcare innovation. Um and that's been a big a big change. I think specifically though like many others at the time I thought that moving more cash directly to consumers in the form of um high deductible accounts would more rapidly transform uh, the healthcare system. Fundamentally You know, looking for greater market forces and care, what you really need is a customer who cares about the stuff we care about, and that's us, right? We care about price, we care about value, we care about safety, we care about all those things in a way that intermediaries cannot. And the idea behind all these high deductibles were, well, have the patient be responsible for more of their spending and you'll have markets develop. What I didn't anticipate were two things. One, the most important thing, which is outrageous, and if I had the government do one thing, I would have it do this, is that insurers have weirdly insisted on the same control over your deductible spending as the non-deductible spending. So even though they're not reimbursing you, they tell you what doctors you can go to, they tell you what prices you have to pay, <laughs> you know, they tell you what's approved as a deductible expense and isn't, it is utterly absurd. It's the worst of both worlds. You have the consumer writing the check, but unlike anything else in life being told, they can't shop around. And so... really, the way shopping around works, of course, is that the consumers aren't supposed to do anything. Providers are supposed to desperately try to take their business. There's about $130 billion of deductible business. That's a lot of business. And no provider has any incentive, any incentive at all, to try to get you to shop with them for your deductible spend, because the insurer insists on controlling all of it. And it is just, it is how, and we see a lot of it in healthcare, how one small detail can undermine a huge public policy goal all by itself. So high deductible plans don't work because they're subject to insurance networks, which makes no sense at all. How self-insured companies have allowed this to happen. I have no idea, uh, but it's appalling. That's sort of the one. And and, and it means that this architecture around high deductibles fails as it has.
1: Yeah. Again, going back to Narayana, when I interviewed Shetty, I had talked to some members of his organization a few years back. They opened a hospital uh, in collaboration with the, the American Ascension System, and they opened it in the Caymans. And it's much, much lower prices than here, guaranteed prices. You know, so the example was a uh, hundred thousand dollars for a bypass here. It was you know, in India at his hospitals there. It's under two thousand, but in the Caribbean it was about thirty thousand. And I asked them, I said, Well, you okay, you're aiming for an American clientele. Have you ever talked to American insurers? And said, Maybe you could send people down here. And he started laughing. I said, Yeah, we've had that conversation many times. I said, Well, what's the problem? He said, Well, they get very excited, they look at our costs and they think, Wow, this is fantastic. Um And then they get to a certain point, they say, by the way, okay, if we send our patients down here, will you be able to give us a a breakdown of the the costs? And we tell them, no, what we'll tell you is the operation will cost $31,000, and that's the only number you'll get. They said, well, but is there any way you could break out, you know, how much is that going to the surgeon, and how much is going to the nurse, and how much to the floor space, and whatever? And said, no, we just tell you it's $31,000. Says, so, so well, we're we're very accustomed to having a breakdown. And he said, well, said so we can give it to you, but that will require us to construct a new building, fill it with accountants, coders, computers, <laughs> whatever, and then we can give you the breakdown. But the bypass will cost a hundred thousand dollars. So we can give you the the breakdown for a hundred thousand dollars, or we can give it to you without the breakdown for thirty thousand, thirty one thousand, whatever. Which do you want? And then they shake their head and say, well, we really like having the breakdown. And then that's the end of the discussion. And it's just maddening and crazy. Well, but,
2: you know, the whole presumption that an insurance company is going to want to save money on healthcare spending is absurd. You know, particularly post-ACA, we limit their profits to 15% of what they spend. That's not exactly a massive incentive to reduce spending. I think, you know, a lot of people are confused at the fact that we have a lot of for-profit entities in healthcare, it means we have some sort of free market healthcare, but we don't. Things like pharmacy benefit managers aren't free market. Things like insurers told that they charge on a cost plus basis aren't free market. Um, these are not competitive, properly incented institutions. They're working within a set of rules that encourages a lot of bad behavior. And I think the example you use here is an insurance company that could, in theory, in your example, save seventy thousand dollars for surgery. Not worth it. Not worth it. Whereas I suspect if the patient was you or I, we would say, okay, I could live without the itemized bill and save the $70,000. And fundamentally, what people don't get is the former is inevitable when you put intermediaries, particularly cost plus intermediaries, in charge of the uh, healthcare economy, the consumer function, and when you put you and I in charge of the consumer function, which is Okay, $70,000 off. I can live without an itemized bill. And that lack of flexibility and all of that, all of that is missing in a system where you say it's got to be top down controlled. And then, of course, a lot of the real incentives are hidden. A huge number of very well informed politicians truly believe that insurance companies are out there trying to desperately try to control costs. They've just been unlucky
1: for the last 70 years. Yep, I'm. I'm just fundamentally a lazy person. I don't want an itemized bill. Just give me one number, and I don't, I don't want to think about two numbers or twenty. We, numbers. we would. We would insist that we charge them if they insisted on giving us an itemized
2: bill. But that's. It's. It's. It, 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 these entities aren't us, and that's fundamentally the point of what I've written. There's a, just a different economy you develop from the Big picture to the little picture when you're serving actual consumers.
1: Somewhere in my file cabinet, I have the bill that my parents received when I was born. It was a little, uh, you know, just a little one sheet thing that said, "I forget how much it was." It was, you know, you have to include inflation, but it was like twenty dollars or eighty dollars, something like that. And okay, inflation, it would be about probably 10 to 15 times that. But uh, nevertheless, it was just a nice little one sheet of paper with a couple of handwritten numbers on it. Uh, it's very nice. So I loved what you said there about somehow people think, including economists, that the laws of economics just stop at the boundaries of healthcare. care. Uh, supply and demand ceases to work. Uh, so concepts like competition simply can't function in healthcare. So I always argue that markets competition can and do yield improvements in healthcare, but bad public policies render the results anemic. So that's a big mouthful, which is why when I okay, I don't want to say all these words. I'm going to go steal David Goldhill's quote from his book, and uh, and I love it, which is uh, healthcare is indeed different, but primarily because we insist on treating it as different. Can you elaborate on that wonderful quote, which I use all the time?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think w- when you get into the rules in healthcare, and I'm, uh, when we talk about my new company, Sesame, there's just an example of this. You realize that almost everything you're required to do in healthcare is designed to protect something in this crazy system of insurance-based covering everything that we've built. That very little of it makes sense on its own. It's all designed to keep this ridiculous, and now totally out of date and if it's standing. And so that so much of the stuff that is unusual about healthcare that, you know, some people on the left will say is about healthcare itself, some people on the right will say it's about state control, is in fact, just all about this original sin of everything in healthcare must be different from everything else and needs this massive structure to be managed and paid. Look, I mean, just, just the numbers, the payment system in healthcare, just managing all the money flowing from consumer and taxpayer to healthcare provider is estimated to be somewhere around $300 billion a year. There are more people who work on figuring out healthcare bills, adjusting them, upcoding them, downcoding them, reviewing the coding, than there are doctors. And all of that to do what? To protect us? We got to pay for those million people who work. And when you start unraveling this, and and unravel it from you know sort of first principles which is we as a society are committed to universal healthcare we don't want people not having access to care they can get and you know maybe not 100% of us feel that way but it's some number deep into the 90s we 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 don't want your ability to get healthcare dependent solely on on your bank account or your income we want to see healthcare technology advance because we all understand that The greatest good in healthcare is achieved by the things that haven't been invented yet. That was the case a generation ago. And two generations ago, it'll be hopefully the case for a long time. That advancing technology is so important for humankind. And we want people treated fairly. But strangely enough, we've insisted that there's only way to manage all of those things together. And despite tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of what would be called SKUs in other industries, right? The most unimaginable variety of healthcare needs and specific conditions and different preferences and all the rest. We've said, let's build a one size fits all around this. And the question is, am I more likely to accomplish those goals by having markets run most of healthcare And having government intervene to do what only it can do, provide the ultimate safety net, regulate as a regulator and not as a business partner, uh, ensure competition, or am I better off achieving what I've achieved now? I don't know how many more decades of failure we need to give something else a try, something more normal a try. And then lastly, to add to that, healthcare is changing. My use of the system 50, 60 years ago was about if I was unfortunate enough to have attack and I needed emergency whatever. Cancer was an emergency procedure. 50, okay. almost. It's not that people don't have heart attacks now, but the overwhelming bulk of healthcare is about managing long-term conditions. The patient is actively involved in that, both as the manager, as an, as a, the person who makes the ultimate decision with the doctor as to what course of action I'm gonna use here. There's almost always choice now. You can do this, you can do this. And we still have the system based on, oh my God, I have a heart attack and I'm unconscious in, a, in an ambulance. There's so much more possibilities to create something more consumer friendly, more flexible and, you know, more, more diverse. And instead we're, we're looking backwards instead of looking forwards. And that's what I'm saying is that it's not that healthcare is fundamentally different. It's that the way we answered these questions 60 years ago, prevent us from answering the questions today in a more flexible dynamic way, reflecting a very different world.
1: Absolutely. So if you had a magic wand, I don't, think you have one, but if you have one, what what what, are, what would be one or two things that you would just change totally about American health care?
2: I would probably go the opposite direction of the Affordable Care Act in terms of insurance. I would encourage massive diversity in insurance products rather than try to get everybody having the same insurance or three or four different types of insurance that we could all price compare because that is not a way to create actual price competition. And I would I would have the safety net work around parts of uh, insurance that were not economically priced. But I would love to see extreme catastrophic plans. I would love to see the broadest variety of possible insurance, the hope of moving insurance towards what it does really well which is help you plan for the unanticipated, major, and catastrophic, and take it out of what it does incredibly badly, which is to be the customer in the system. I think another small step, which I mentioned before, but I think it can have very powerful consequences, is to prohibit insurers from regulating deductible spend. It's your own money. You want to set a limit as to at what point I can... Uh, be covered. That's fine. But the reality is patients are going to be far more careful about spending their own money. And if you don't believe that, then, you know, it's absurd to believe in high deductibles to begin with. But the idea of saying, we want, we will allow markets for customers to exist here, but only on the demand side, not on the supply side. <laughs> Providers aren't going but patients should feel free to shop around with <laughs> them. That has worked terribly and is a disaster. And that would be my big and little. And as I mentioned, intellectually, Trying to have the conversation move from how do we protect the old to how do we create dynamism in the system, new ideas, not one size fits all, not just accept change, but embrace change. How how do you get the Amazons and the Apples and the Teslas of healthcare? You get it by giving them someone to sell to. And right now they have no one to sell. They can't say no innovator can sell to an insurance company or Medicare. An innovator can only sell to a customer. We need to get real customers back in the system.
1: Yep, yeah, and I will just note as a public service, um, someone listening to this might say, "Oh, okay, so Goldhill is one of these typical conservative guys." And just, but, but what you're saying really has nothing to do with your overall political philosophy and where you position yourself. That you're, I don't know, one of the most iconoclastic guys politically that I've known.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, t- to me, it's not. It's not. Let's let's embrace markets because markets are always better and government is always bad. In fact. You know my belief is there are some things in healthcare government must do, but we've compromised its ability to do well. So the safety net has to be provided by the government in my mind, and there's meaningful regulation that needs to be accomplished by the government. I think we're doing both quite poorly. The safety net is way too expensive without being close to universal. And regulation is very, very spotty because, you know, if a government tries to find a hospital, if the government tries to find the hospital for bad behavior, the hospital says, you know, I'm treating you know, 10,000 Medicaid patients and 20,000 Medicare patients. And so now I have less money to do so. And it was like, oh, well, yeah, we'll make it up to you somewhere else. That's not the best way to regulate. I would like to see the government get out of the business of healthcare so that it can regulate better. So it's not an ideological thing. For me, the issue of markets is really simple, which is healthcare is a consumer business. It is, that's how it has to relate to customers because customers now that we're in the chronic condition error and about to be in the personalized medicine error, it, it cannot get their needs satisfied any other way than through the complexity and diversity and heterogeneity of a consumer business. That's what you need. That's going to be better care. And there's no way to get there without markets. And, you know, from the little thing, which is the, I'll give you the tiniest example. There's no pediatricians working at 10 p.m. You never had a newborn, and I, I now have a three-year-old, so I'm a couple of years away from it. You know, the first time she gets sick, you want to take her to a pediatrician, and they're always first time gets sick at le- 11 o'clock at night. Why are there no late-night pediatricians? Why is your only choice the emergency room, which is terrible for a newborn? Well, your only choice is because reimbursers say there's no difference between the inputs used at 11 o'clock at night and 11 o'clock in the morning. Therefore, the price at 11 o'clock at night is the same as 11 o'clock in the morning. Therefore, no one works at 11 o'clock at night. If you had markets operating, there's going to be some late-night pediatrician in every city in the country who charges one and a half X her regular rate. Parents are going to be happy. Babies are going to be better off. Maybe yes, maybe no. The doctor's better off. Those positive some things can never happen in a centralized one-size-fits-all economy. And because healthcare is now a consumer industry, we need lots of those things to happen in order to satisfy
1: the range of human demands that exist today. And of course, I know that you are busy... Trying to form markets, uh, be a marketplace. So you co-founded Sesame, and you're the company's CEO. So tell us all about Sesame. Uh, What is it? uh, What do you hope to do? And and I'll, I'll throw in there when you when you get through telling us that. Uh, I know there's others who've tried to go down similar roads. So for example, Amazon, Berkshire Hathaway, and J.P. Morgan Chase formed Haven, which was supposed to somehow harness the power of markets for the benefit of their employees and maybe for others, uh, but then it eventually folded. So so what is Sesame, and how is it different from Haven or other attempts to do this, and uh, where do you want to go with it?
2: Well, you know, Sesame is, which you can find at sesamecare.com, is in a way one of the simplest ideas in the internet. It is a marketplace for buyers and sellers uh, in this case of healthcare. What we have is 17,000 doctors and other providers list their services for sale. So telemed, urgent care, consultations in-person or telemed with specialists, primary care physicians. Um, uh, We have a pharmacy. We have labs. We have imaging. We've got a wide range of uh, outpatient procedures, and they're all priced. And you buy them. And you know it's a traditional idea in the internet, but revolutionary for uh, for healthcare, which is that for the corner of the market we serve, which is called the direct pay market, where you're not using insurance either you know, because you don't expect to get reimbursed because your deductible is too high or because you're uninsured or your insurance doesn't cover a particular service. You're a cash price payer, whether you know it or not. You can come to Sesame and do what you do sort of everywhere else, which is look at a price, look at, as importantly, the exact nature of the service the providers are offering. There's no insurance codes on our platform. The doctors say, here's what I'll offer an appointment. Here's what I'm doing in this procedure. Uh, Here's the price. Here's the time. And it's one of those things that, again, really old in the internet. I was on the board of Expedia, which was something like this at the very early days. um, It brings markets to things where there had previously been confusion or lack of clarity or inability to simply transact on your own as a customer uh, to healthcare. And what we see is something really interesting. We see very, very low prices. So prices that are usually 20, 30, 40% Below what insurers call their discount prices. But providers get paid up front, which is very important because it's a long, boring topic, but high deductibles have basically created a lot of what's called credit risk and collections risk for providers. They can avoid that through Sesame. Our patients pay up front in return for which they get and lock in a great price. But what's interesting is it's a positive for both sides. For our doctors, it's a source of new customers. It's a way of getting those customers without the credit risk I mentioned, and it saves them an enormous amount of time and administrative expense. If you talk to a typical independent doctor's practice, they'll say the cost of taking insurance is 20, 30, 40 cents out of every dollar of revenue. Well, you serve a direct pay customer, you don't bear that expense and you get paid up front. We've been in business. We relaunched about, uh, we had done an experiment. A couple of years ago and then we relaunched last year after the pandemic allowed us to it's grown enormously and what's interesting is how it's grown we've seen lots of doctors reduce their prices because as sesame has gained volume and we've served you know well over a hundred thousand patients there's a reason to reduce your prices I'm going to get a whole bunch of patients many of our doctors get 20 30 40 50 appointments a month and they haven't just reduced their prices which is great but they've also redefined their services. We see packages existing on Sesame that haven't existed anywhere. We see what's called dynamic pricing, which is a different price for a different time of the day, reflecting the doctor's busyness or lack of busyness or desirability of an appointment. All the things that you see in a normal economy, you see in healthcare on Sesame. And that's our goal. Uh, it's not a, it's, it's a business and I we think ultimately very, very good business. But, you know, it's also obviously proving out this thesis that, consumers have really been harmed by the lack of market dynamics in healthcare. Uh, our providers aren't rigorously competing with each other, but they certainly understand that you know, if they have five hours free and they want to do telemed tonight and somebody else is pricing those at $25, you know, pricing at $45, you're going to get a lot fewer patients. You may get more because they like your particular practice or they like your quality ratings or what have you. The last thing I would mention on that, is that a key part of Sesame is that what's being communicated between doctor and patient, seller and buyer, is value, which is not just price. It's quality of the physician, years of experience, location in some cases, nature of the specialty, natures of the the, the treatment packages that are offered. And that is the most important thing, is understanding that on a healthcare marketplace, it's never going to be just about price. It's going to be about this bigger issue of value.
1: So where are you different from say Haven or or some of the others who've tried this.
2: Well, but Haven really hasn't I mean it wasn't clear to me what Haven was trying, but Haven is that, based that, that on that was
1: a problem too. Uh,
2: that was a big problem, but Haven I I think uh, was based on a premise that is fundamentally wrong in healthcare, which is that a big intermediary has leverage. So public policy says, "Oh, employers really care about the cost of healthcare. They're the ones going to drive down the cost of healthcare." And employers have now been providing most of healthcare funds for almost 70 years, at what point do you give up an idea that doesn't work? There's a good reason employers can't drive down the cost of healthcare It's because when it comes to healthcare, they've got a very complex agenda. A lot of it is about employee relations. A lot of it is about not doing anything wrong or a mistake or what have you. The reality is, if you're a big enough employer, you know very well that the cost of care is really coming directly out of the cost of compensation, not coming out of your bottom line. And so you don't have this sort of simple thing, which the consumer has, which is, I want to pay less for that period. If you're the head of HR or even a very big company in America, you're not getting promoted to CEO because you saved your company money on healthcare expenses. You can only get fired for employees complaining about you depriving them of necessary care. And so the employer incentives are very, very complicated. Look, I've been an employer or CEO for a, a long time and one who's very interested in benefits. And the fact is I want our benefits to be you know, competitive but not excessive, controlled, but I don't want my people not getting the care that they need. I don't have a simple objective. And neither do America's employers. It's, it's the wrong place to look for reform. And yet we continue to do so. I, I don't know about Haven, but I do know that no employer in America has leverage over the healthcare system. I don't care if you've got a million employees, you don't have a million employees in one market with one hospital. It's just not how it works. And again, your employees are very sensitive to the quality of their benefits, you can only go wrong by trying new things. Uh, My hat's off to those companies that are trying to do innovative things, because it takes a lot of courage in this market to do so. But at the end of the day, companies have too complicated a set of objectives to be good reformers.
1: I uh, often make the same argument about Medicare because I'm always hearing, "Well, they Medicare, you know, we can harness the enormous power and the enormous market share of the federal government." And uh, my my response is usually a simple: "Do you believe the same is true in, with the Defense Department?"
2: Yeah, right. oh, exactly. Right. It's such a good it's such a good analogy. And, oh, that's and, right. We wrote we actually, wrote an article
1: on that together.
2: I remember that. I, 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 I remember. About that. Yes. Uh, yeah, that, but, but there's another element of that too, which is Medicare is an entitlement. So if I don't have a budget, am I really going to try to save money? Is that really going to be my, I mean, I have a budget at home and I'm not always great at saving money. Can I really count on a government agency that doesn't have a budget to do a great? It's absurd. And but but what's what's interesting about this is apart from the specific arguments, is just there's this crazy intellectual assumption in healthcare that something that hasn't worked for 50, 60, 70 years, pick pick which institution we're talking about, is somehow suddenly gonna work. Right. So employers have never been able to control the cost of healthcare. Neither have insurers, neither has Medicare. So that's going to change now because of what?
1: And there's no answer to that question. It's blind faith. Well, we're coming up on the uh, end of our time, but I did want to throw, I always like to throw out the question that I used to throw out to, to my students uh, on day one of our of our classes, which is, I would ask a student, what's the single most interesting thing about you or something really kind of interesting. And sometimes they told me about a personal accomplishment or a famous relative or somewhere they had been or something that had happened. So I don't know. Tell us something that will really interest that audience out there.
2: Well, well, Bob, you've known me for a long time. You know, there's nothing interesting about me. So I will try to come up with something. And I think the thing that's most interesting about me that is relevant, is that I met my wife in the restroom of a bar. So we had maybe, yes, it was a unisex restroom, and we had maybe a 15, 20, 30 second interaction. And if I'd had to go to the restroom five minutes later or she had to go five minutes earlier or whatever, you know, three kids are not born. And I bring this up because it drives me crazy to get into an elevator now and see all the young young single people on their phones. You know, they're, the love of their life is, is standing across from them and they're never going to meet them. One of the great joys in life, and I think I certainly missed it during the COVID lockdowns, is just strangers and chance interactions, chance meetings, learning something from somebody you're never going to see again, or maybe you make an effort to see again. I'm really lucky in that the person who I for my life with. I just so happened to intersect that one moment in that one restroom in that one bar. But there's endless numbers of those things in all of our lives and maybe it's not always as crucially important to the future as, as that interaction happened to be. But it, uh, it has really governed me for the rest of my life is that is that leave yourself open to the spontaneous and unexpected.
1: Well, I met, met my wife uh, whom you know. I met Alana through similar circumstances. She wandered into a little cafe where I was having breakfast and I handed her a line. I looked at her and I said, um, don't you play in the orchestra? And she looked with, no, do you? I said, yes, I do. She said, well, what do you play? And I said, French horn. Anyway, I told her later, later on, I said, I knew very well that you didn't play in it, but I thought it was a weird enough question and intriguing enough that you would want to sit and have breakfast with me. And, Anyway, it's forty-one years later. So, but yes, I I agree. This the serendipity is so much, so much a part of life. Yeah. Well, David, as always, it is a pleasure. It has been a pleasure. This is a great conversation, and I when I haven't talked to you for a while, I forget just how interesting you are. So, uh, so this was great. Thanks for the time today,
2: Bob. It was great to great to spend time.
0: Thank you for listening to the Discourse Magazine podcast. You can subscribe to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And please feel free to share this podcast with like-minded friends and to leave us a review. We're always happy to hear from you. Finally, check out Discourse Magazine, which is available free online at www.discoursemagazine.com. Thanks again, and see you next time.